Have you heard? 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 Welcome to Have You Heard. I'm Jack Schneider. And today is Opposites Day. <laughs> Come on, Jennifer. You know what the line is. And I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And Jennifer, today I want to ask you a question. I am so excited for this. I can't believe that I didn't convince you to come up with this idea a long time ago. The tables have turned today. I have chosen the topic for today's episode and have a bag full of surprises for you. And the first one is, I would like you to tell me what METCO stands for. Oh my gosh, oh my gosh. I happen to have it right here. I shouldn't be saying that. I should be... Yeah, you should uh, act like you know it. That's exactly. my that's I, my routine is you pretend I you just know everything. what Jack does. Why, Jack, that would be the Metropolitan Council for Educational Opportunity. Why do you ask? <laughs> well, as our regular listeners know, you and I are located in the greater Boston area. I'm going to sweep you into metropolitan Boston there. And uh, as many may not know, METCO is a voluntary busing program that serves to integrate many schools in the greater Boston area as well as greater Springfield. And uh, it's one of the approaches to school desegregation that we will be talking about on today's episode. And Jack, why are we talking about this today? <laughs> See, Thank you. It's not easy, is it? It's not easy to be Jennifer on the show, but you're proving that it's not easy to be Jack either. Uh, well, thank you for that setup, Jennifer. Uh, we're talking about this now because, you know, I think that if we had wanted to talk about school integration 10 years ago or 20 years ago, that really the only way we could have framed a show like that would have been, you know, why have we failed on this issue? Why is this not something that we're talking about anymore? Um, certainly, there were scholars in the 90s and aughts, people like Gary Orfield, uh, who never let the aim of racial integration go in education. Uh, but we are seeing some policy momentum at the state level. Uh, so here in Massachusetts, there's a bill being brought in front of the legislature, as well as at the federal level. So the Biden administration is promising to put $100 million into the idea of integrating our schools. And I think it's a really appropriate time then to resuscitate a little bit of the history for our listeners, and then really catch them up to speed in terms of what's happening right now at the state and federal level. The other thing I really like about this is that it's actually kind of a feel-good story at a time when we could really use one. Yeah, right. I'd say that our downer to feel-good ratio is probably nine to one. Uh, so enjoy this happy 10th. So Jack, listening to you talk about the kind of surprising return of this issue to the policy table really reminded me of how completely absent it's been. If there is such, I mean, I don't know what a policy table would be, but I started working for the teachers union in Massachusetts in 2006. And frankly, this was an issue that nobody even mentioned. And if it did come up, people would just say, oh, we have METCO. I can remember the Boston Globe publishing an op-ed, kind of a triumphant op-ed to the effect that we, you know, we don't need pushes for integration anymore because we have high-performing charter schools. So 
you know, it's in some ways this is a feel-good story, but it's also kind of a surprising feel-good story. Yeah, and I think that one of the reasons why this story feels good, other than that here we have an important issue that policy elites are finally beginning again to take seriously, is that in many cases this is the result of grassroots activism and activist scholarship. Um, you know, if I were writing a political science journal article about this, I would frame it as agenda setting that began at the grassroots level where, you know, there were scholars like Gary Orfield, who I mentioned earlier, as well as, you know, a number of people who studied with him, people like Susan Eaton, who is a friend of the show, uh, who never let this issue go. There are people um, like Peter Piazza, who is another friend of the show, uh, who blogs about school integration. There are groups like the National Coalition on School Diversity uh, that have continued to organize people and continued to try to bring together different folks at the table to have conversations about the importance of racial integration in our schools as well as economic integration. There are uh, you know, activist journalists, people like Nicole Hannah-Jones, uh, who has written uh, and did a, a very powerful piece on This American Life about the issue. And we can see that all of these things together elevate the issue such that, uh, you know, political leaders and other kinds of policy leaders who might otherwise be drawn to different kinds of legislative activity or policy action end up coming to this and saying, you know, this seems like something worth working on. You left out one person. That would be acclaimed podcaster Jack Schneider. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And his ne'er-do-well co-pilot. Okay, so you're probably wondering, if Jack is in the driver's seat for this episode, does that mean that he'll be doing the interviewing? Will we get to hear him attempt my special podcast voice? Alas, some things remain unchanged. So our inspiration for this episode is a flurry of new legislation in Massachusetts that seeks to do something about our segregated schools. Senator Brendan Crichton is the author of one of the bills. Crichton is from Lynn, Massachusetts. It's a city north of Boston, about 95,000 people, many of them immigrants. And growing up in Lynn and attending the public schools really shaped the way he sees the world. When I grew up, the public school classrooms that I was in from kindergarten through my senior year, uh, it was always diverse. And there were, there were a mix of people from all walks of life, some who have been in America for quite some time, many that you know, were first generation. Kind of when it first dawns, you know, I guess as a kid, you don't really notice these things when you're surrounded by it all the time. And when I was in fourth grade, a teacher of mine, Miss Nishin, she was teaching us about diversity or, or talked about uh, Lynn as a melting pot and how by being surrounded by people that look different than us and you know, we're coming from different backgrounds and all of that would help us, you know, in every stage of our life. When we went to junior high, which when you're in fourth grade, you're petrified of going to, you know, leaving that school that you're used to, or when you moved on to high school or college or the workforce, it was just something that stuck with me. And I think it might've been the idea of, you know, melting pot, which is the first time you're hearing that term. Long after he left Miss Nishin's class, those words really stayed with him. Whether he was on sports teams or in a workplace setting, 
those early experiences of being surrounded by lots of kids from different backgrounds really prepared Crichton to be in a diverse world. So when he was elected to public office and started going back into Lynn's schools, he noticed something that he found troubling. The city schools have been getting more segregated, and they're not alone. According to some recent research, and full disclosure, our own Jack Schneider was involved in this project, the number of intensely segregated Massachusetts schools serving children of color increased by a third over the last decade. You know, I'd always go back to the classrooms and talk, and it always, you know, on the surface, it it does seem diverse if you just look at kind of a snapshot. But as you start to look at the numbers, and this is true in Massachusetts, as highlighted by some great work done recently, the intensely segregated non-white schools have increased significantly. And in Lynn, in particular, it's gone from 12.5% to 36% in the last decade. So Crichton decided that he wanted to do something about the problem. Note that he is not alone in this effort. Legislators, including Boston's China Tyler, are working together on this. And Crichton's bill focuses on two things. First, encourage school districts and communities to collaborate on integration efforts. Then, make it easier to see which districts in the state are quote-unquote intensely segregated. Oh, and by intensely segregated, Crichton is not just talking about urban communities. He's talking about the lily-white cities and towns with highly rated school districts. One thing that stood out to us was providing incentives for communities. Not pretending that we have a solution, but trying to empower school districts to, to dive into this. And it was based off federal legislation that in, in some programs that President Obama had during his administration that you know, President Trump had rolled back, but you know, basically encouraging school districts through a grant program to create plans to integrate between districts, within districts, and also within schools. And at the same piece, I think information in, in making everything publicly available and easily to read is so important because the, the public doesn't see this. I mean, even if you you may have a a student in a school district that's highly segregated, you may not know how, you know, significant it actually is without seeing the numbers. So we we would require under this bill for DESE to annually collect and report on data at the district, school, and classroom level. We we collect a ton of data at the state level through DESE, but reporting it annually in an informative way for both policymakers and for the public to see, hey, look, I mean, you could just, I'm sure we'll have tools to just look at the map and you can just see what areas are are facing these issues. One of the exciting things about the conversation that we're suddenly having in Massachusetts is that it's not just focused on the schools. There's a recognition that the schools are a reflection of their communities and the long legacy of residential segregation. And addressing that means doing something about housing and transportation. Even here in Massachusetts, progressive Massachusetts, you know, so many policies that led to these segregated societies, which in turn, if you, I mean, our schools are based on where you live largely, so it's going to lead to segregation in schools. So I think housing plays a a major impact as well as access to transportation. So one of the other bills we filed was to create a commission. I want a commission that's going to dive into this, make recommendations, closely analyze it through schools, housing, and transportation, but then not end up on a shelf collecting dust. And I think to your point, the momentum that we feel right now as a state and as a country, this is a perfect time to do it. You know, we have a year or so to get this study done. I mean, we have billions of dollars heading this way to Massachusetts uh, for a wide range of uses, and we need to think about ways that we can help get it out equally to, to all communities and to all people. As for why integrating schools would suddenly emerge as a sort of policy possible, Crichton says that the national reckoning over race is a big part of it. But 
there's something else happening too. Massachusetts is in the midst of a generational shift, and that means that the legacy of the bitter anti-busing battles in Boston may finally be losing its grip. I wish folks wouldn't see this as, as a divisive issue. I wasn't around during busing in the 70s. Obviously, we've, I've read about it. I've seen the footage, and it has left still a scar on Boston I mean, for all the world to see. It's also made it an uncomfortable conversation to have here in Massachusetts, but I think Everyone should at least be able to admit, or or everyone should be able to say proudly that we value diversity as a society, and thus we should value it in our schools, and then also admit what we're seeing in our schools, we are not having the diverse classrooms that would lead to these outcomes we desire. If we could do that as a a society, I think, or or as elected leaders, it makes it a lot easier. And the Student Opportunity Act that we did, I mean, it's huge. It's It's something we've all been fighting for for quite some time, and it's an amazing step in the right direction. But that's, you know, operating costs for, for schools. That's money going towards our schools. We also need to build new schools, too. And we also need to take a look at what else is leading to less diversity than, than we need. Jennifer, listening to Brendan Crichton, their mention residential segregation reminded me of an episode that we did a few years ago. And I'm wondering if you can remember, by the way, I'm playing the Jennifer role here, right? So like, congratulations, you're on the hot seat. Um, Do you remember this episode that I'm thinking about where we had an esteemed scholar on to talk about that? Why, I certainly do, Jack. That would be Richard Rothstein. You, you're you're getting really good at the jack roll, right? Yeah, because you've got all the right answers. Um, yeah, right. So I, I'm thinking about one of the things that Richard Rothstein said to me that didn't make it into that episode, uh, and it was you know really pointed what he said. Uh, I don't know if you recall this, but he basically uh, took me to task for suggesting that schools could drive residential integration. And I actually still continue to believe that. Um, but you know, he firmly believes, or at least believed at the time, that the arrow ran the other way, that it had to begin with residential integration, and only then would you get school integration. Uh, and so this just has me thinking about um, the, the story that we tell about the quote-unquote failure of the school integration movement that began, uh, you know, people often think of it as beginning with Brown. Of course, it began, you know, decades before that with activism by um, black and brown associations and individuals bringing lawsuits on their own or in coordination with groups like the NAACP. Um, and all the way through, you know, I think scholars generally pitch it as like 1973, 74, a couple key Supreme Court cases there, the Keys case and the Milliken case, um, and then a long reversal. And it's generally a story told about the failures of policy as a tool. Um, but I think it's really important to talk about how actually policy as a tool maybe wasn't the failure Uh, here. The failure was uh, first the fact that white people then and now um, did and do a lot to undermine it through white flight and, uh, you know, selective schools like what we've talked about on this show as segregation academies. 
which sprung up in the South in the wake of the Brown case, uh, as well as the fact that as a society, we never really addressed the structural barriers of an unfettered housing market, right? The free market and uh, the sort of merciless qualities of it uh, combined with the racial wealth gap. That if you aren't taking an ecosystem approach where you are thinking about the kinds of unintended consequences that you might trigger in terms of the behavior of white people. And if you're not thinking broadly outside of schools about things like housing, about things like wealth, then the narrow policy levers afforded to you in education, then then the limited set of policy levers available to you if you are just working around schools uh, really aren't going to be enough. And I think that that's a different story than telling a story about how school integration failed. Well, Jack, I do actually remember that exchange between you and Richard Rothstein, and I remember thinking that that seemed like such a hopeless view of the world, right? That you can't do anything until you fix housing. And part of what I personally find so inspiring about the work that Crichton is doing and the work that your organization is doing, and just because I'm playing the Jack role right now, does not mean that I will remember either the acronym or what it stands for. Jennifer, that would be the Massachusetts Consortium for Innovative Education Assessment. So in preparation for my Jack role today, I spent I stayed up all night reading history. I was reading this fantastic <laughs> book. I think you've read it too, um, by Lily Geismer called "Don't Blame Us." It's the about suburban liberals and the transformation of the Democratic Party. And it's really one of the best accounts I've ever seen of sort of what happened post Brown. And what's really interesting is so she traces she goes back and looks at the first proposal for Medco, and you can really see like what these white communities were thinking, first of all, they were obsessed with property taxes. How was the program going to affect their property taxes? They were obsessed with the number of students of color who would be coming. And the original premise was something called scatteration, if you can believe it, right? The idea that that you could scatter students of color throughout these affluent communities without reaching a tipping point. And then the other thing I thought was so interesting is that right away, you see the kind of most earnest liberal voices saying, you know, this is something that's really going to benefit white students, right? That they're losing out by not being exposed to a racially diverse world. And so even though I learned a lot about history and I encourage other people to read Don't Blame Us as well, it was pretty shocking how stuck we are. Right. And I, I think there's one more thing worth pointing out here, and it's that white people, if they were going to be on board with this, really wanted to control the terms. Uh, they weren't particularly interested in either equal terms or in communities of color uh, driving this forward on their own terms. So uh, this expresses itself both in the rationale for this, right? White people really wanted to feel like they were giving a gift 
to communities of color by allowing them to come into their schools. And that really framed the importance of racial integration as uh, something about school quality, uh, something about the power of white kids and predominantly white schools, that somehow being in that environment would be really educative and positive for black and brown kids. And our thinking has really moved beyond that. Uh, well, when I say our thinking, I don't mean the white community. Uh, I mean people who are interested in programs like voluntary busing, um, that really no advocate of that today is making the case that you know a gift of a better school is being given to these kids. Um, nobody serious is making that argument. And the other thing that white people who were willing to support voluntary busing uh, wanted was to control the terms of it, right? So they wanted specifically to control the number of kids of color who were coming to their predominantly white suburban schools. And really, they wanted to make sure that they remained predominantly white, that they would give up some seats there, again, as a kind of gift. But uh, you know, in no way did they see this as a project to create truly racially integrated schools. And again, that's because of the framing here that this was about opening up seats in quote unquote good schools for kids from quote unquote bad neighborhoods. And uh, I think that again, those who are advocating for voluntary busing as one of many different kinds of approaches to the problem of racial segregation um, really are not making a case like that at all anymore. Now to METCO, which, as you learned earlier, stands for the Metropolitan Council for Educational Opportunity. It's one of the country's largest and longest-running voluntary school desegregation programs. 3,200 students of color in Boston and Springfield are bused each school day to predominantly white schools in the suburbs. Millie Arbahi-Thomas is the president and CEO. She came aboard three years ago. And her goal is to transform the program into what she calls Medco 2.0. So, you know, I came here when I was 51 years old, and now we're working on newer, newer initiatives in terms of anti-racism work. I'm also a Medco mother of two of my children. Um, went through the Medco program. One already finished the Medco program um, and went there K through eight. And then I have another uh, student there that's in seventh grade. Uh, currently in the Brookline school system. So I started working as part of MECO as a mom and then um, was able to take on this responsibility, you know, as the the next leader of the organization. Arbahe Thomas sees METCO as a success as far as the relatively limited mission it was set up to serve. But as she sees it, that mission was not big enough, not just in terms of the number of students in the program, but in what's expected of the school districts, the classrooms, and the communities where those students end up. For the last 55 years, the METCO program has been bringing students of color into these racially isolated communities. Um, but I'm not quite sure how much of the that the work around anti-racism has happened, you know, and really trying to make sure that we are impacting both students um, that are at the table, both urban and suburban. So uh, we have been getting an, a great education because all of these schools literally are the best schools here in Massachusetts. But what I would like to see come out of the whole MECO program and just integration in general is really truly looking at integrated spaces and are we doing it the, the correct way? Are what things that we can do to enhance it? Are we equally impacting both sides? 
um, you know, of the people being served? And are we just sending a person of color into a classroom or are we actually transforming curriculum, transforming, you know, how we do our hiring practices, looking at how equitable our discipline practices are across the board and what kind of access the students of color have in terms of advanced classes? And part of what makes Arbahi Thomas hopeful about the possibility of transforming METCO's relationship to these communities is that for the first time in decades, demand to participate is way up. After the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., METCO saw a surge in the number of communities that wanted to participate. Well, that happened again after the murder of George Floyd. A number of districts who have really come out and said, you know, we realize that we're really isolated. We want to have some diversity. We know that the MECO program is part of the way that some other school districts are, 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 you know, are addressing this issue. Can we be part of the MECO community? So when I start thinking about expansion, I don't want to do any kind of expansion without people doing some work of preparedness. Because just from seeing our current districts right now, you know, and hearing the stories of our students and families, it's there's a lot of work to be done still in terms of, you know, the 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 creating a welcoming environment for our students and being, you know, really prepared for this integration. There's a lot of work to be done already in our existing community. So for new ones, we wouldn't do that work unless they've done at least, in my mind, what I'm envisioning is like a year's worth of work of similar to what Senator Crichton is proposing, self-assessments, audits, scoring themselves as to how they, you know, how, how they view themselves as an integrated community and developing plans of action to be welcoming in receiving our students. Now, if you were paying close attention just now, you probably noticed that Arbahe Thomas just referred to Medco's receiving communities as racially isolated. Are you picking up on an emerging theme in this episode? The original Medco program treated racial isolation as a problem that afflicted the sending communities. As for how the Concords and the Lexingtons ended up being so white in the first place, well, that wasn't really up for discussion. Fast forward five decades, and the state schools are more segregated than before Medco. So we have shown through the data and the research that basically there hasn't been improvements in terms of racial integration, both in our urban community um, here and both in the suburban community. So I, when I look at the whole picture, everybody needs has some work to do. Boston has work to do. Suburban school districts have work to do. No school system that I have seen has it 100% together. When we're talking about the whole picture, right, because we're not talking about just academics, we're talking about a truly integrated educational experience, no matter what system you look into here in Massachusetts, I haven't seen one that has all of it. Now, if you're like me, you probably needed a bit of a pick-me-up when you started listening to this episode, and I feel like I got that when I talked to both Senator Crichton and Millie Arbahe-Thomas. Their mutual conviction that the time is right to do something about an intractable problem really inspired me, and they left me convinced that this may actually be the moment that something starts to change in Massachusetts, because our racially isolated schools just aren't acceptable. All of us lose when that happens in terms of so many areas, in terms of the interracial friendships that can break down their own barriers of each other because of a personal relationship, not based on what someone else told them, not based on what they see on the news. In terms of getting people comfortable in the workforce to work with people that look different from them. You know, there's just so much that can happen, you know, if we get this right. 
in terms of of our future, both as it relates to racism and both as it relates to having a diverse workforce that's really comfortable, you know, working with all kinds of people. So I think this is this is the time and this is the future. Nobody should be educated in isolation. Nobody. Everybody loses when that happens. A big thank you to our special guests, Senator Brendan Crichton and Metco's Millie Arbahe-Thomas. And Jack will be right back to lead a discussion on what we learned in the course of this episode and to tell us what the topic is for our In the Weeds segment for our Patreon subscribers. But is he up to the task? I guess we'll soon find out. So as we've both noted throughout this episode, Jennifer, this is really a kind of positive episode, a story about how activist scholars and grassroots activists, engaged journalists, um, you know, members of the public, the civil rights community continued to agitate for racially integrated schools and eventually uh, as a result of that activism got it back on the policy agenda and now there are a number of you know fairly straightforward n- not easy to win but fairly straightforward policy actions that are beginning to unfold inside state houses. Uh, We focused on Massachusetts in this episode, as well as uh, to pick up some momentum at the federal level. You know, I'm thinking of efforts not just like voluntary busing, which we talked about in this show, uh, but also controlled choice plans, uh, a la the one that is in place in Cambridge, Massachusetts. You know, there's affordable housing activism. There are even diverse by design charters. But, you know, if I'm being Jennifer here in this episode, I really want to think about, like, what are the gray clouds on the horizon? Like, what do we need to be worrying about here in this kind of sunny moment? And I'm hoping that in the Jack role, you can really give us cause for maybe wringing our hands a little bit. Well, obviously, one thing is that it feels like you and I are sitting together in a nice, quiet room with sort of like new age music playing behind us while the world burns down outside. (laughs) (laughs) And and that could refer to both the climate changing way, but also just this insane stuff that's happening around critical race theory. Like how removed from the world do we have to be to be talking about, you know, like, positive policy momentum. And so there's that part of it. Um, But then, you know, there's also the, we were talking about Richard Rothstein and the whole, what seems like the much heavier lift of integrating housing. And, you know, I live in an area where any attempt to build new housing is met with just ferocious opposition. So I'm in a city that's actually quite diverse, both economically and racially, but around me are lily white enclaves. They are the high-performing school districts that that people want to live in. And so if you go about two miles down the road from me, you will see in every other house basically a NIMBY sign, right? And it's things like, save our water, not right for Manchester, uh, out of our forest, right? And so there, it's a kind of visible reminder of just how hard it's going to be to actually change the conditions on the ground. Yeah, I'm always struck when I go through Weston, Massachusetts, uh, a wealthy suburb uh, about half an hour outside of Boston, that many people have both 
Black Lives Matter signs in their yards and these signs that say Stop the Whopper, which is a reference to uh, a housing development uh, that would introduce, you know, apartment-style dwellings at an affordable rate and presumably bring people of color to Weston. The irony is a little too rich for me there. So, Jack, I can imagine there are people who've listened to this episode waiting for this moment, thinking to themselves, wait, if Jack is Jennifer today, that means he has to lead us over the paywall. How's he going to do it? Well, folks, there's a Patreon page, and you can go there and do your thing, and you get some extra bonus material as a result. And if you don't want to buy our book at a bookstore like people usually do, and want to get a quote-unquote free copy in return for money, which makes it not really free in my book, um, then you know you give a certain amount each month. You become like some sort of fancy level person. You get a free book, a quote-unquote free book, and then Jennifer gets really excited and probably writes you a thank you note uh, and tells me that I should probably do the same. How did I do? Uh, not very well. So where do you have to go to sign up for that great deal? Patreon.com slash have you heard, I think. Have you heard podcast? Patreon.com slash have you heard podcast, I think. And Jack, what are we going to be talking about in the weeds today? <sighs> I'm sp- I was supposed to do that part too. Uh, okay. Uh we will talk about... Oh, uh, I, I got it. Uh, how about... Um, so, Jennifer, you and I recently were working on an op-ed talking about sort of the parallels between the assault on higher education in California in the 1960s uh, and what's happening right now in K-12. So why don't we talk about that, right? This, the idea that you can use a culture war as a distraction to get people to feel alienated from schools that they actually really believe in and support, right? So this is something that Ronald Reagan did to great effect as governor of California back in the 60s. So we can talk a little bit about how he managed to really end the era of free college in California by doing this and what some of the parallels are right now with K-12. And this would be the part where I now undercut everything you just said. Yes, right, in this spirit of revolution and comradeship. Uh I'm going to actually model what a new Jack could sound like. If you don't want to climb over the paywall with us, why don't you leave us a five-star review or pass the podcast on to your friends? How is that? That, that, It seems like what you're trying to do is get me to be briefer. Uh Uh-huh, okay. On that note... I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. Thanks for listening. 